hope you'll turn with me and a copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel chapter 19. And our focus this morning will be on verses 1 to 8. Like many of you, I'm sure that you saw some people who were stuck this week. Stuck in a gas line. Maybe stuck at home because they didn't have the gas to go where they needed to go, or they had to prioritize where they needed to go. Long lines, inconveniences. Superficial in one way for many of us. Of course, some people need to get to work, and that matters. But being stuck... But we know that we can also become stuck spiritually and emotionally. And that's where King David is when we find him in 2 Samuel chapter 19. He's stuck. The rest of the kingdom is ready to rejoice. They have been victorious on the battlefield. David's rebellious son, Absalom, who sought to usurp the throne from his father, has been soundly and roundly defeated. And David's side is victorious. It appears that David's path to the throne is now cleared out. And people are ready to rejoice. Everyone is ready to rejoice, except David. Why? Because David gave one command when he sent his troops out. He said, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. Spare him for my sake. But David's general, Joab, decided that command made absolutely no sense. And so when Absalom, in his retreat, got caught by his hair in a tree, Suspended between heaven and earth, Joab saw his opportunity, and he dispatched him ruthlessly, assassinated him, and he thought nothing of it. He thought that was all for the good of David and for the good of God's kingdom. But when the news comes to King David, he's not pleased. His heart is broken. He's grieving And we've seen how in David's heart, in his love and compassion for Absalom, we can see a reflection of God's heart for sinners. God's heart that sent his one and only son to die on the cross, not for good people, but for sinners like you and like me. And so we can learn from David's grief in that sense. That his grief is a reflection of God's heart. But today, we need to see how David takes his grief to an excess. He's stuck. He's mired in it. He's stuck in a state of shock. He's repeating the same words over and over and over again. He just can't move past it. All because he knows he cannot bring Absalom back from the dead. He cannot change this. Have you ever been stuck like that? You look back over a relationship. 
You look back over a decision, you look back over a circumstance, and you know you just can't reverse time and change it. What do you do with that? What do we do with those things in life? There's no reversing it. Where do we go when we are stuck in a state of shock? Well, some would have us turn to what is known as the serenity prayer. Are you familiar with the serenity prayer? It says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And there is a lot of truth in that. I commend it to you. But what we need, and what we should pray for and long for today, is more than acceptance. More than simply saying, I can't change that, I just got to live with that. What we should long for and pray for and seek with everything we have is a recognition that God can and does use our regrets, our pain, our losses to draw us closer to himself. So that even when that scar, that wound isn't healed and it never will, we can say, God, I praise you and I thank you for that scar because without that scar, I would not have known who you are. I would not have drawn closer to you as I have. That's where we want to move. But to get there, we need to understand something very important. It's not shocking that our lives, in the short and certain life that we live, in the midst of a fallen world, are often mired in adversity. That's not shocking. It's not shocking that we're going to get stuck in loss, in pain, in regret. This is par for the course. I'm sad to say. It's par for the course because we're in a fallen world that has fallen because of you and because of me and because of our own rebellion against God. What is shocking What is shocking is that the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, can use even the most severe trial, even the most severe trial, to lift our eyes toward heaven. To lift our eyes toward heaven. And to fit our heart, to prepare our heart, to shape our heart. To do his will on earth. This isn't just looking up at heaven, looking up into the sky, waiting for Jesus to come back. No, we are to do God's will, but we cannot do God's will until our eyes know what we should be looking at and what we should be looking forward to. And by the end of this, David doesn't just accept this. He's ready to do God's will on earth. May that be true of you and of me as we read together, beginning at verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 19. Joab was told, 
The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son, Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son, my son! Then Joab went into the house of, to the king and said, Today, you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now, go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told, the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. Let's start by looking at what David saw. What David saw. And what David saw was irredeemable loss and pain. What David saw was irredeemable loss and pain. He's stuck and mired in reflecting on the could-have-beens and the should-have-beens. He's looking back on, how could I have been a better father? What could I have done differently? What, could I, what should I have said that maybe could have prevented this moment? Where did I go wrong? Oh, the the heartbreak in a parent that asks that question. The could have beens and the should have beens. And David knows because God has told him that while Absalom is responsible for his own sinfulness and for his own rebellion, God has also brought this calamity, this adversity into the kingdom and into David's life because of David's own sinfulness. We all know the story of David and Bathsheba, most famous, juicy story of adultery ever. Where David allowed his lust to get the better of him. But he couldn't stop there, because then word might get out. So then he compounded his error by having Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered on the battlefield. No, he didn't use the sword, but he ensured that someone else did. And God confronts him and rebukes him and judges him and says, while I'm going to forgive you, you're not going to die. Judgment is coming on your house. And God says, 
the sword will never depart from your household. What you did privately that you think no one else can see, my judgment will be public. All will see my judgment upon your life and your kingdom. Ouch. Ouch. That's a lot to live with. And that's where David is. He knows that so much of this is his fault. Oh, Absalom, my son! My son, if I, if I had been a better father, if I hadn't done that, if I could just avert my eyes. But he can't. And there are going to be issues in your life where you look back and you flat out regret that and you know you can't change that. You can't change that decision. It is what it is at this point. But we also know that there are other circumstances in life that grieve our hearts. And we're not really responsible for them. You're not really responsible for a diagnosis you receive. You're not always responsible for when someone ruptures a relationship. When someone harms you in some way. What about those things? Those things also grieve our hearts. And there's nothing we could have done to prevent that. We also need to know that. This is all-consuming in David's vision. And notice what he does. Look at verse 4. The king covered his face and cried aloud. He covers his face. He refuses to see anything else. Because he's consumed by what could have been, what should have been. And he's consumed by Absalom's failure. Oh, Absalom, if only you had made a different decision. If only you hadn't taken it this far. And so what I hope you see today is the paralyzing, all-consuming effect that such grief and pain can have on us. And we need to know that this is our standard reaction. We cover our face. We cover our face and we can't see anything else. This is, this is what we tend to do. And whatever that thing is, and, and we all have something, we all have something that consumes our prayer life that burdens our hearts and our minds more than anything else. What is that for you today? What is that? And beware that this is our default reaction. Ah! Absalom! But we don't only look at what David saw. We look at what David couldn't see because he covered his eyes, and his face. And what he couldn't see was God's rich and free grace. God's rich and free grace. But notice the way God chooses to tell David about 
his free and rich grace. He uses Joab. (laughs) What? Joab, the one person who disobeyed David's one command. The one person, maybe, who's most responsible for David's current grief. Yes, David's own sinfulness played a role. Yes, Absalom's own sinfulness played a role. But Joab is the one who led the assassination. And that's who God uses. And when we read this, we need to say this is probably an illustration of what not to do in bereavement counseling. Okay, This is not a model to follow. Do not do this with anyone you know who is grieving. Ever. But, can God use a Joab to wake us up out of our stupor? And to say, look, take your hands off of your face and look. Yes, he can. And he does. Now, Joab's Motives are certainly twisted. He's a man of this world. He's a shrewd, crafty political operator. He sees the lay of the land politically, and he knows what needs to be done. He's not motivated by what God would want him to do. He could care less. But he knows that what David is doing right now, his grief, being mired in his tears, is costing him politically. And this kingdom that Joab has worked so hard to support is at risk of collapsing because of David. And is Joab exaggerating here? Absolutely. We shouldn't read this as, oh, Joab was right and David is wrong. No, this is a, this is a mixed bag. But that's what life is like in a fallen world. Now, we like to think of God getting our attention in a gentle way. A still, small voice. Meek and mild. And can God do that? Absolutely. But does he always do that? No. In fact, sometimes it takes a rebuke from a Joab to get our attention. And we recall those words in Hebrews 12, verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Discipline. Are you open to having God discipline you through a Joab? Not because Joab is is necessarily right. Not because Joab is innocent, but because God needs to use something harsh to get your attention. Because all of us are so bound by our sinfulness. 
We are so ensnared. We are so blinded. Because we always think we can see what's best. This is why we need God's Word to enlighten us. To break into our lives. And here's something you need to know about yourself. And to know about me too. We are works in progress. We are works in progress. Even if you believe you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, even if you believe the penalty for your sins have been paid for on the cross, even if you are resting in what Christ has done for you, you're not holy yet, and neither am I. This is but the beginning of a lifelong process, and it will feel grueling sometimes because we have sin caked on the inner linings of our hearts. And it, it takes a lot of work to scrape it off. Just picture going to the dentist and they use those terrible little instruments to scrape the tartar off your teeth on that sound. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. But I need it. I need that treatment. In the same way, there is sin and the residue of sin and the effects of sin are caked onto our hearts and we need the Holy Spirit of God to fill us, to cleanse us, to redeem us, to save us. You need that and so do I. And how does He do that? He does it through His Word. He does it through other people speaking truth into our lives. Even a Joab Do you see the discipline here? It's a harsh word, but a word that David needs to hear. Why does he need to hear it? Look at specifically what Joab says to him. Today, you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. What he says is that there are people, David, who are willing to die for you. There are people who have just gone down range for you. And when you close your eyes to that, you're despising what they've done for you. He says, you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. This is backwards. And he's challenging David to see, this is Absalom we're talking about. Not the dutiful, perfect child. This is Absalom, the rebel, the traitor, the murderer. And when you've got all of this, you've got all these people who are willing to lay it all on the line for you. And and you're fixated on Absalom. You're not seeing what you should see. This is what David can't see. He's also showing him, David, they need you. People are looking to you in your position. You have great influence where you are, where God has placed you. People are looking to you. David, there's work to be done. 
Now, does Joab have a pretty superficial view of what that work is? Absolutely. But he's right. There's work to be done, and he's probably right. We don't know if this is a threat or, or a prediction. He says, David, if you don't go out there and encourage them, then you're not going to have a single person left. And the calamity that will result from that will be worse than anything else that's come upon you. And that's saying a lot. <laughs> because we've seen David go through a lot, right? A lot. And Job is telling him, you better wake up. You better go speak to them. You better put on a strong front because they won't stay for long. He's showing him, you have turned this great victory into a day of humiliation. How dare you? How dare you? Now, we're not where David is. We don't have an army looking to us. But we do fall into the trap that David fell into where we cover our faces and we can't see the person who loves us the most. And who loves us more than anyone else? The Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we know that he loves us? Because he went to the cross to die for us. And we see a foretaste of this in Job's words. People who are willing to die for you, David, how can you look that head on and then get over it and act like they haven't done anything? But oh, how we get so tired of hearing this, right? Oh, I know, I know, I know. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I heard it my whole life. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 give me something fresh. Give me something new. It's, not, it's just not very interesting. Oh, how our itching ears can lead us astray. No, don't ever get over this. And this is the remedy when you want to cover your face and you say, why did this person die? I loved him. I loved her. I can't go on. I can't face life without this person. What am I supposed to do about this terminal illness? It's all-consuming. I can't think about anything else. I'm depressed. Remember, no, you can't change that. No, you can't bring them back from the dead. But there is a God who loves you so much that He sent His one and only Son to do for you what you could never do for yourself, to pay the penalty for your sins on the cross. And no, you will never, ever appreciate that. You will get over that as long as you fail to recognize the depth and the ugliness and the deadliness of the sin in your own heart. A superficial view of sin always leads to a superficial view of salvation, which always leads to superficial Christians. May God spare us by his mercy. No, don't ever get over what God has done for you. This is rich 
and free grace. You can't claim to have done anything. You, you can't say, oh, well, I believed and that person did it, so that's why I've received His grace. Oh, no. Oh, no. We can't take any credit for His grace. That's why it's grace. And it's rich. It's fully sufficient for every need. No, you, you want more of this. No, you want this person back. You want this relationship back. You want this job back. You want this thing to be healed and fixed. The solution is often not for that to be fixed. It's for you to learn to rest in God's grace. To be able to say, His grace is sufficient. Because His power is made perfect in my weakness. No, I don't know why. No, I can't handle it. No, I don't have what it takes. That's why I need His grace. And God's power and His greatness and His glory is magnified when we are that weak and dependent. That's what God wants. And praise be to God for how He empowers us when we rejoice and when we rest in His rich, abounding, and free grace for sinners like you and like me. Have you ever received it? Have you ever said, God, thank you for your grace. I don't deserve it. But here it is. I don't want to just talk about it anymore. I want to receive it. I want to be changed by it. I want to live by it. I want it to sustain me every single day of my life until I die. Can you say that today? I pray that you would. Now, what did God open David's eyes to see? David couldn't see God's rich and free grace. It took a Joab to wake him up and say, look, take your hands off your face. But what did God open David's eyes to see? God opened David's eyes, and he can open your eyes today to see his unassailable promise. His unassailable promise. And what is that promise? You go back to 2 Samuel 7, and God promises David that he is going to make an eternal kingdom out of his household. But what he doesn't promise is that it will be his oldest son who inherits that eternal throne. What he doesn't promise is that David will always be comfortable and happy. But he promises that his will is going to be accomplished, accomplished even when David's is not. David doesn't get what he wants. You won't get everything you want in life. Have you accepted that? Do you believe that? But God will always have his way. Because he is sovereign, because he is God, and we are not. And we know that David embraces God's unassailable promise, because what does he do? So the king got up, verse 8, and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told, the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. They all rally around him. Now, David is ascending to his throne. Now he is assuming his responsibility. Now, because 
God has lifted his eyes to see heaven. Now he's ready to do God's will on earth. God opened his eyes to see his unassailable promise. And God empowers him. He fits his heart to do his will on earth. Now, it's really not very dramatic, is it? This, this is what it looks like to move past the grief. He's not going around shouting, saying, all right, it's over. Never mind Absalom. Oh, no, 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 no. Those wounds, those scars from losing a beloved son, however rebellious, however much a traitor, however much deserving what came to him, those wounds and those scars will linger in David's heart for the rest of his life. But those scars and those wounds and the healing that God brings in them and through them, those are what God uses to bring him to just sit on the throne. This is not dramatic, right? He just, he doesn't say a word. He just is seen so that his men see there is a king on the throne of Israel. God's got this. And I want you to know that healing on the other side of your grief and your pain and your loss, it may not be dramatic. It may be as simple as bringing yourself to invest in a child or in a grandchild. It may look like something as simple as volunteering somewhere. It may just look like seeing a cause, seeing a need, and responding and saying, as David says in Psalm 40, God, here I am. I desire to do your will. I desire to do your will. That's it. Don't expect more than what God has promised. It may look like this, and that's okay. That's okay. Healing can look this way. Don't look for fireworks. Look for God to show you the work that he has left for you to do. And there's work for every single one of us to do. Amen? There is work for every single one of us to do. But as people who look to the Lord Jesus Christ for hope and for salvation, we have a better word than anything David ever had. We have a greater hope than anything David ever imagined. And it's what we find in 2 Corinthians 4. Where the Apostle Paul is describing his ministry and the power that drives his ministry in the face of all kinds of adversity, all showing forth God's power. Hear these encouraging, encouraging words. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, 
but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Nothing less than the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you put your hope in him. Nothing less than that. Do you realize that? So many Christians take this for granted. They, ha- they haven't turned the ignition key on the Holy Spirit present and working in them to know the power of what he can do in and through you, how he can comfort you and build you up and strengthen you in your grief so that you're not stuck and mired in adversity. He wants to lift you out. He wants to put you on a solid rock. He wants to give you a testimony of His grace so that you can make it known in the assembly, at the workplace, in your family, at the dinner table. God is great. And His grace is rich and free. But to do that, we need to hear where we should look. This is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. You're dying right now. You and I are wasting away as I speak. Yes. So should we not listen anymore? No. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day by the power of the Holy Spirit. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now someone says, how dare you, Paul, tell me my trouble is light and momentary. Well, when we see that trouble in and of itself, no, it's heavy. It's dark. It's all-consuming. But this is where our conviction about heaven is so important. So many of us simply don't believe in heaven. Or if we do believe in heaven, we believe it in a shallow, superficial, everything will be okay kind of way. Hear me clearly. If you don't believe in eternity, then you'll never know how to live in this world. You'll never know what matters. You'll spend your life looking for heaven in this world where you'll never, ever find it. But if you see the troubles that we face from the perspective of eternity, well then, yes, they are light and momentary. They won't last. Because heaven and what God has promised those who put their trust in Him is so much greater than anything in this life. And yes, there are pains, there are hurts, there are wounds in this life that you simply have to give to God and say, God, I don't have an answer, and you have to trust Him to be just, to be righteous. And you have to silence your heart in light of His glory. And say, God, I was going to bring this up to you, but you know what? (laughs) I can see now that in light of the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ, what is that in this moment? Do you believe in eternity? And if you do, 
are you fixing your eyes on it? To know that if this is the last day you have, are you living it in a way that brings honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ or not? If this is your last day on this earth, are you prepared to stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Are you prepared to say, I have no right whatsoever to know eternal life. I have no right whatsoever to know God's grace. I deserve God's eternal judgment. I deserve for Jesus to say to me, as He will say to some, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. But somehow, someway, for God's own mysterious and sovereign reasons, He has chosen to break into my life, to find me in the miry pit, to lift me up by His grace, to lift my eyes to see heaven, to know eternity is real, it matters, and to fit my heart, to prepare my heart for living life in this earth. There's life here. Live it always in view of eternity and what matters most. Are you ready? Are you ready? I pray that by His grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, He would work in your heart right now to give you the assurance that you're ready. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we confess that we are so easily stuck. We so quickly cover our faces. But we know that there is real pain, there is real hurt, there are things in this life that will leave scars, that will leave wounds on our hearts for the rest of our lives. But Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word for the challenge of your word, for the hope of your word, that there is someone who has conquered even death itself. There is someone who has lived a life that we have not lived and will not live. There is someone who possesses the authority and the power and the willingness to die for sinners like us. And there is someone who even now is speaking through Your Word to us, to me, to all of us, to say, look up! Take your hands off your face. Look at me! Not because there's a, a quick fix available. Not because all your problems will go away. But because in the light of His glory and grace, everything else in this world pales in comparison. Lord, give us a full and robust and clear sense of eternity 
so that we know what matters, so that we can live life on this earth as long as you give us breath to the fullest extent as we are empowered by your grace all for your greatness, all for your glory. Lord, help us to not take this message for granted. Help us to be transformed from the inside out because we know we're wasting away on the outside. But Lord, I pray for a renewing work on the inside for every single person who hears this message. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.